just, I'm just cribbing from Lafferty because didn't he say like all of that just like literally the other day on Twitter? I think. Oh, it's fine. People don't. <laughs> people, don't people don't. People like to hear the same thing over and over again. I I find. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website wherepeteris.com. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of Where Peter Is, and today I'm continuing my conversation with Adam Rasmussen and Rachel Dobbs. Adam and Rachel are both converts to the Catholic faith. In the last episode, we discussed their conversion journeys, the obstacles that they've overcome, and the things that they've learned since becoming Catholic. In this edition, we discuss the state of the church, and I ask them what advice they would give to church leaders and theologians to better teach the faithful. Rachel, do you have any thoughts about the language that people use towards converts? Do you think any of it is justified? Do you think it's unjustified? I think we all understand why people use that language especially because of that EWTN, Catholic Answers, online podcaster convert world. And frankly, some, some of them did come into the faith. I mean, it sounds bad, but we brainstormed a list of anti-Francis cradle Catholics and pro-Francis converts. And I think for most converts that come in in a more natural, organic way, there's no anti-Francis animus. But I know that you, Rachel, especially, having come through that evangelical Baptist tradition, having read your way into the church and then into traditionalism, every stereotype has a little bit of truth behind it. And the little bit of truth was the form of Catholicism that you were living up until your conversion continued and continues to continue under Pope Francis. Yes, I would say that the stereotype, like with any stereotypes, there's there's a lot of unfairness to it but yes there's also some truth to it too and it's because of what is being projected i would say especially within certain catholic media as you pointed out ewtn catholic answers and these others where they do feature a lot of converts in that media and that's a very small small part of the entire church you know there's a bunch of converts who don't act like that who don't think that way, who have been happy with Pope Francis. Like I know in my case, I, I think what I like the most is just how much he has challenged me. Like you said about thinking about the poor. And he's he's provided this challenge to us that we frankly have needed for a long time. And really, it's been there. It's been there with Pope Benedict and Pope JP two, but nobody was listening to that. And he's just out there in, in the foreground saying, no, you got to go and reach the marginalized. you got to go out and smell like sheep. Just smell like them. Get out there. And he has criticized some of the rigidity that we see and some of the stuff, some of the, the little, I would have to say, petty stuff that, especially within North America and, and maybe some parts of Europe, the internet, pointless arguments about, like, like what Adam was, so, yeah, I mean, I think largely the stereotype is is 
kind of groundless, but there's there is some truth definitely to it, and it's because who are the loudest voices, and so when you hear the loudest voices, especially within certain Catholic media, they do tend to be converts, and they were some of the ones that fairly soon after they converted, they started being conference speakers and writing books and doing this sort of thing, and that coincides with celebrity culture and the problems with that as well. But that that's another issue altogether. I actually wanna wanna throw a theory and I'll start with you, Adam. I think in the years following Vatican II, there was a there was a lot of chaos and there was and and admittedly, I mean my one of the reasons I think that that drove my my mom and and her dad towards the reactionary traditionalist mindset was because they belonged to a parish that was extremely liberal and you know they brought out everything that wasn't allowed they they had communion in the hand 5 years before it was allowed the women were ripping off their chapel veils 3 years before it was allowed they had altar girls before anybody else they introduced some serious abuses liturgical dancing bringing in homemade bread that was, if not invalid, at least illicit matter for mass. There was a lot of kookiness. There was a lapse in catechesis. I think we were trying to go from a very rote system. She was born in 1951 and went to Catholic school through seventh grade, and it was the stereotypical 23-year-old nun in full habit in front of a room of 60 kids all of whom sat in alphabetical order and were addressed by their first full Christian name, even if they had a nickname at home, wore uniforms, memorized the Baltimore Catechism, all all these stereotypes. And the response to Vatican II was that to sort of let people understand, to encourage the laity to understand the meaning behind these teachings and not just to memorize them and not just to follow rules. But that led, I, I, I do genuinely believe that led to a lot of chaos. And when it came to looking to our, our true teachers, the bishops, I think the ball was really dropped. I mean, there are a few notable bishops out there who are among the people who are teaching, but a lot of bishops, just like I said about the idea of actually going to a priest with a problem, the bishop is the teacher of his flock. And I think there was a thirst among Catholics to learn their faith, and they weren't getting it from the institutional church. So they got it from a TV nun and the self-appointed Catholic apologists. Unfortunately, because the bishops ceded that ground, I mean, I, I worked for the U.S. Bishops Conference for, for seven years, and I, w- I would tell you that 75% of the people that I met, when they asked me where I worked, they w- could be lifelong Catholics, and I would say I work for the U.S. Bishops. They would say, oh, you work for the Archdiocese? They had no concept of what the Bishops Conference was. We would crank out these materials one after another, but nobody would have ever heard of them. Catechetical Sunday. Every Every third Sunday in October for the last 25 years. I never heard of Catechetical Sunday until I was assigned to it as a project when I worked for the Bishop's Conference. I mean, they have good intentions, but they clearly had, they, they, there was a clear deficiency when it came to teaching 
the people. Also, theologians, and, and Adam, you can speak to this, there was a lot of division between the theologians and the bishops during this era that we're discussing. What I think may have happened is that there was a break between the bishops and theologians and the people that they had a responsibility to teach, and that left a vacuum that was filled by a nun with a TV satellite and a lot of popular apologists who weren't necessarily the best theologians, well-intentioned, wanted to bring people to the faith, were able to testify to their own conversions and, and maybe some of the things that brought them into the Catholic Church, but just as you said, Adam, maybe didn't necessarily know everything or had gotten some things wrong. And now what we're seeing, I, I think we saw some of this before Francis's election, but I think now it's become crystal clear mm-hmm. that their preparation and that their their knowledge was a little bit deficient. Adam, you're a theologian. You're a professional theologian, a lecturer, PhD from Catholic University, teach at Georgetown University. Do you have any answer to this? Okay, two points. First of all, uh, thinking of your parents' experience and why they reacted against the post-Vatican II period, I think that, and I'm speaking as someone who was not alive at that time, so this is very like theoretical, right? Now it's not like I lived through it. The way the Catholic Church implemented the reforms of Vatican II, and I support every single one of those reforms, was poor. So I think it was Father Tom Reese said this years ago, Benedict XVI should not have needed to bring back the Latin Mass because it never should have been ripped away from everyone in the first place. There should have been from day one a provision to let that remain with a slow pastoral rollout. But I think the papacy at the time, and this is not meant as a personal criticism of Pope Paul VI, the papacy was used to being heavy-handed, even in the post-Vatican II period. So if the papacy, the Pope is saying, here's the new liturgy, guys, and then some people are like, well, I don't know, we're not so sure about this, or, you know, there was no understanding of, we need to be careful about this. This was a momentous sea change for the Catholic Church that we're still unrolling, and people tried to slam it through in just a few years, probably with some good intentions, because, hey, this is good stuff, right? making the mass more accessible, more relatable. This is all good stuff, but you try to slam it through in a 2,000-year-old religion, and a lot of people felt left in the dust, legitimately confused, not the fake confusion of nowadays, legitimately confused, mistreated, maybe a heavy-handed pastor telling them, well, we don't believe in this anymore, and now we do it this way. And people legitimately in good faith, reacting against that, saying, what are you, just like telling me that my faith is is wrong and now this is like Catholicism 2.0? So I think people who have traditionalist leanings that go back to the 1960s and 70s, I think that can be a legitimate and authentic expression of Christian spirituality and Catholic spirituality that was handled poorly by much of the church's leadership. And I would distinguish that from these mostly young white male traditionalists today who are involved in some politically dubious stuff, far-right extremism stuff, 
that is a completely separate thing. And Pope Francis has said this himself, that there is a difference between the legitimate traditionalism from the past with older people and young people adopting it for political reasons. I think they're com- those are completely different. One is is legitimate and the other is is an ideology masquerading as Catholicism. That was point one. Now you also, point two, talked about theologians and bishops ceding their authority and the ivory tower. I think you were right on the money and that there's kind of two stories here. One is the bishops and one is theologians. I'm a theologian and I do try to do what today everybody calls it public facing theology. It's the new buzzword. And there are other theologians doing that. Massimo Fagioli comes to mind and several others as well. But I think for a lot of the older theologians, Catholic theologians, and this is, again, not a personal criticism of anybody, if they went through some of the painful, troubling experiences of the JP2 years where they felt like maybe they weren't being listened to or they were being, you know, from going to a really prominent position at Vatican II where theologians were, were writing the documents to then being like treated with a bit more suspicion under John Paul II, there were a lot of bitter feelings, a lot of bad fights took place. And theologians retreated from that, sort of like, fine, if you don't want to hear from me anymore, I'll just go away and I'll write my books and teach my classes. But theologians sort of being pushed out and then withdrawing And my position as a younger theologian who didn't fight those fights, I don't want us to fight those fights. We don't want to be stuck in the past rehashing ex corde ecclesiae, okay? We need to just try to move beyond that, not saying who was right, who was wrong, but to to build a better relationship. And I think that is totally possible under Francis. So I hope that more and more Catholic theologians of any age, will do podcasts, will do blogs, will do Twitter. And there definitely are some on Twitter, and they're not all traditionalists, okay? Some of them are. That's something the church really needs. Now, the bishops, I think what you said about them kind of ceding their authority, and then these self-appointed apologists kind of just start showing up in the late 80s and in the 90s, the bishops had no idea the damage they were doing. I see a political parallel here, and maybe I'm wrong, with the rise of maybe like talk radio with Rush Limbaugh, where the sort of like Republican Party leaders also started to lose control of their message and ceded it to grassroots startups, people with a microphone like Rush Limbaugh and and many, many others. And then later, they thought, they thought those guys were doing their work for them, ginning up support. And maybe in a way that was true. But then look what happened to like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. It turns out you don't control those people. And if the, if the, the grassroots, more extreme internet and radio people don't like you, you're just an out-of-touch leader, they'll dispense with you. And they won't listen to you. And you'll end up towing their agenda. I see a parallel with the bishops where... They lost, for whatever reason, I was not even alive when some of this was happening. I was a kid. I wasn't a Catholic or anything. They lost a lot of authority, and the Catholic Answers people came in. Mother, uh, Mother Angelica came in. And I think the bishops, for the most part, maybe they thought it was fine. They're just helping build up the church. and then, But we're still the bishops. And when we say what, what's right, they'll listen. And guess what? When a bishop crossed Mother Angelica, she wasn't going to take that. She knew she had the power. She was like 
and I hope this isn't an offensive analogy, she was the Rush Limbaugh there. She had that influence, that microphone. And now, guess what? More and more bishops are starting to toe that conservative line because that's where the people are. That's where the money is. And so it's been a long time. And this is what happens with this sort of populist uprising. And now the bishops, some of them, well, some toe the, cons- the, the, the kind of extreme conservative line and they're the EWTN bishops now. But the, the ones who maybe are not like that, which is probably the majority actually of bishops are not necessarily into that stuff. They don't know what to do. They go on Twitter to share their message. Say you're Cardinal Blaise Supich and you go on Twitter to share your message. Right-wing trolls are all over you, sicking, sicked on you because of EWTN and, and et cetera, et cetera. EWTN is becoming a catch-all for this whole thing, not all of which is even affiliated with them, actually. But now we're in a position where the bishops have lost most of their authority on the practical level. Yes, theoretically, as the successors of the apostles, they hold the authority. But what good is theoretical authority if no one's actually listening? And so we're in a rough spot now. And how do today's bishops get that back? Well, it's going to be a long slog. And all I can say is thank God for Pope Francis, because his leadership is like a beacon of light. Now, all these people are shooting arrows at him, yes, and, and maybe he is wound, a wounded shepherd, as, as Austin Ivory says, but um, at least he is someone we can follow, and, and other bishops are following his example and selling their mansions and trying to get that smell of the sheep, following his pastoral example. I just pray every day that we will be led out of this almost a de facto schism, basically. We will be led out of this into a brighter future, but the only way out is through. And it's going to be rough and dirty and painful, but I, I hope that these bishops who are not in the pockets of this big EWTN money will persevere and they won't let trolls on Twitter.com stop them. Let me throw this historical parallel by you. And and Rachel, you're a history buff. I don't know if if you've studied this at all. But back in in the 19th century in France, there were two movements that were popular. There were the Gallicans, who were maybe a more independent, maybe a little bit dissident group that and many of their bishops fell into this. I know that some of the things that the bishops would do is make revisions to the liturgical calendar to include French saints that weren't on the universal calendar. I mean, stuff that's practically nothing nowadays. But obviously, after the French Revolution, there was this church versus state and and who has authority where going on in France. And then there was this group against the Gallicans called the Ultramontanists. And a lot of them tended to be very reactionary. And they were constantly fighting with the bishops, constantly opposed to the bishops, criticizing the bishops, trying to get them in line with the Pope, trying to get them in line with the universal church, claiming that they were defying the Pope, claiming that they were defying what the church taught, trying to bring back Gregorian chant, which according to John O'Malley's book had pretty much died out by the 19th century and they had to revive it and nobody knew what it sounded like. But one thing that they did and one thing that, that helped them avoid criticism was the claim that they were on the Pope's side. And I know that 
the Wanderer and Mother Angelica and EWTN were very, very anti-bishop. They only liked the bishops. It didn't matter whose diocese you were in. The bishops that they followed were the ones that agreed with them. And whenever a bishop crossed them, they would accuse the bishop of being against the pope. So I see this kind of, before 2012, I see a, a historical parallel there. And what they were saying, I think Pius IX, at least based on the historical texts that I read, didn't mind that they were backing him, especially when he was trying to exercise his authority over the French bishops or, or get them in line. And I kind of see this is what Michael Voris did during the Benedict years. I see that this is the, what the Wanderer did. They always criticized all the American bishops, criticized a lot of cardinals, but always, always stood by the Pope. The thing that's different this time is that now they've turned on the Pope, right? So we've got this folk hero, self-appointed Pope movement within the church that's defiant of all authority, it seems, where they look at people with no authority, people like Vigano and Cardinal Burke and Cardinal Mueller and Auxiliary Bishop Athanasius Schneider. None of them are diocesan ordinaries. They don't actually have anybody under their authority at all. And yet these are the people that they consider their leaders. Yeah. Well, what struck me was the part right near the end there. These people and groups that made a big deal out of following the Pope, many of them converts, and then they followed the Pope until they didn't. And to me, what that says, at least in their public messaging, I don't can't speak to their hearts, their conversion and their promotion of conservative Catholicism was more of a political ideological stance than a spiritual stance. Because if it was a spiritual stance, then listening to the Pope would not be something that could change, right? And of course, if you look at Catholic doctrine, indeed, that is there, as everyone knows. But because it was more about fighting abortion, gay marriage, the sexual revolution, etc., as soon as there, and you know, Lafferty has said this, as soon as there is a Pope who's like not really helping them on that front, who am I to judge, Pope Francis said, about uh, a gay priest, I think it was. Well, they just threw him under the bus because, well, this doesn't serve our agenda anymore. So you mentioned Mike, an apologist who wrote two books about how we have to follow the Pope, and now he constantly undermines the Pope. Why? Because of his political feelings and different interpretation of Catholicism, I guess. And to me, what that shows is if, if someone is putting out a message and it's especially a convert to Catholicism, we need to check to see, was this a conversion to Catholicism or was this just a conversion to the, the latest and greatest incarnation of this conservative philosophy? Where it's like, you know, Protestant conservatism isn't really working out for us anymore. Conservatism and Protestantism is just not, it's not giving us what we need. Let's become Catholics. That seems like a stronger stance from which to fight whatever. Maybe this is related to another point, and it's another theme of Pope Francis's papacy. He talks about the difference between proselytism and evangelization. Proselytism he defines as winning someone over to the faith through argumentation, religious debate, 
maybe even the experience of reading one's way into the faith, when you take away that spiritual element, that connection, that relational element, it, it really just becomes, this is right and that is wrong. Whereas my understanding with Pope Francis, and I, I think this is, is difficult for intellectual Catholics of all stripes. I, I mean, I'm a, cradle, I, I'm a cradle Catholic and I fall right into this. The idea that it's about the person and listening to them and responding to them and accompanying them, like Pope Benedict talked about, and this was a line that struck me too from Benedict, was that the church grows by attraction, not for all people, but for most people. And I think, I think that a lot of people in that, in that traditionalist anti-Francis mindset don't quite get that. For them, it's about this argument won for me. So therefore, because I have bought into this argument, this argument is going to win over everybody else because I'm super smart and I've figured it out. But I don't think most people, I don't think most people's minds work like that. Like, I don't think where Peter is, is a website for every Catholic that loves Pope Francis. It's for Catholics who either have concerns about Pope Francis or they're worried or they want to address some of these complaints that others have about Pope Francis. Rachel, when Pope Francis first spoke about the difference between proselytism and evangelization, did that resonate with you in a particular way? Yes, I think it did because he's trying to point out that it's it doesn't work to, like you said, to make arguments and tell people right off the bat, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you why you're wrong, using these arguments or these scripture verses. And so if you don't follow this exact way, you're going to hell. That's the way to, to reach anyone for Jesus. The first thing to do, don't tell them they're wrong. Get to know who the person is. Try to find some common ground with whatever their beliefs already are, whatever their backgrounds already are, and by so doing, perhaps allowing the Holy Spirit to take control of this situation here, they can maybe come in. But that's up to the Holy Spirit. That's up to them to make that choice. I, I Again, look at the examples of the apostles. Look at the examples of what St. Paul at Athens. I don't know how many Greeks came on board, but he pointed out, you know, they had this pantheon. Oh, you know, you, you've got all the gods here, including the one to the unknown god. Well, let me tell you about that one. Why aren't we using that example as a way to evangelize? That's exactly the example that Pope Francis has been telling us to do. And that's what our Lord told us to do. So, yeah, proselytization doesn't, it's coercive. It, it's, it's like a, a marketing scheme that you're doing to somebody. And I, I experienced that a lot when I was a Baptist, uh, to the point of giving incentives to Sunday school classes to go out to bring people to the Lord. And they had like literally tally marks. There was a contest between them and whoever like run the most souls would get a party, something silly like that. And, and that's, that's just said, no, we shouldn't be doing. And Pope Francis is completely right to condemn that. I mean, evangelization is about relationship, really. It's about showing love to others. Don't tell them right out, you're sinning. 
and you're going to hell if you don't quit sinning. But you don't know the person. You don't know anything about what's happened to them. Don't just point fingers and tell them you're sinning. And that's what, unfortunately, what has happened is we've become so focused as a church, at least here in the United States for a couple of decades now, we have become so focused on certain moral issues. And yes, those are important to deal with. Issues of abortion, contraception, things related to LGBTQ issues. But we've lost sight of what the gospel is. You know, we've elevated those issues to such a degree that that's become the religion to some people. It's become an idol. And Pope Francis is all about you got to tear down those idols and you got to think like our Lord Jesus. You got to go smell like the sheep and you got to evangelize. Don't proselytize. That's what he's saying. Yeah, it's almost as if somebody isn't going to stop using contraception in this day and age unless they've got a really good reason. And if they don't believe in the truth of the Catholic Church, if they don't want to follow Christ intentionally as a Catholic, that's, the la- that's not what you want to lead with when you evangelize. Adam, in your journey, do you feel that there was maybe a little bit of a back and forth between being evangelized and being proselytized into the faith? And, and did you notice that there was a different dynamic? And, or, or when did you discover that the two were different concepts. I definitely didn't understand the difference at first. I mean, Rachel already said it so well, especially that word coercion, or I love marketing scheme. The, the difference is coercion, which takes many different forms, like trying to force or almost trick someone into joining your religion. Emotional manipulation is one factor that's used. Money can be involved in different ways. An offer of power, influence, using dishonest arguments. And I would say what first began to open my eyes to it was dishonest arguments where people are trying to knock down an objection about, say, let's take a big one, faith versus good works and the Protestant Reformation And trying to just knock that down with a couple nice proof texts with no understanding of the theology whatsoever on either side, really. Uh, Certainly not an understanding of the Protestant theology, but often not any real meaningful understanding of the Catholic position either, which is much more nuanced than some people uh, think. Because, you know, theology is (laughs) hard. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to study. Um, and so dishonest arguments are one form of, of proselytism, uh, where you say things that aren't true to try to get them to join your religion. And so I think Pope Francis has helped point that out. But actually, Benedict was already talking about that. So it's not exactly a new concept. I feel in a lot of ways, Pope Francis is actually putting a lot of ratogenarian thought into action. And I think a lot of that is is just as a result of his personality and upbringing being a little bit different than than Pope Benedict's. I think Benedict just happened to be a, a lot more shy and bookish, and and Francis happens to be an extroverted guy who likes to be around people, and and therefore, and don't get me wrong, I remember early in the papacy, people would uh, show these pictures of of Pope Francis carrying his own bag or whatever, and then they'd counter with a picture of Pope Benedict carrying his own bag. That's not the point. The point is, people didn't notice for whatever reason 
that Benedict was carrying his own bag. Maybe it wasn't reported on. Let's let's capitalize on this moment, though. And and that was I felt that that to a large degree was a wasted moment. Rachel, uh, so Adam talked a little bit about his what he feels is his calling that he feels to be a public facing theologian as someone who is a convert to the faith and who's not a professional theologian, but obviously well-read, has a great background in history, and most of our listeners are not professional theologians. What do you think is a good path forward? Speaking as someone who came into the faith of your own decision, as someone who went down the, the rigid path for a while, Rachel, do you have any ideas about what you think the church should do going forward to help convert hearts and minds and to help them appreciate Pope Francis and what he's doing better? Well, I, it all starts with the gospel. Live the gospel. And that means love. And that means listening. Listen, listen, listen. That's been a problem, is that some church leaders there have not listened. I would also say on a more practical matter, guys, please get into the 21st century when it comes to the internet and PR. Get your communications in order. Get stuff out there. It, it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing just how much certain Catholic media and also secular media can like take things and be able to twist them so quickly. We saw that, like for instance, with the Amazon Synod, which was a complete <laughs> disaster PR-wise. Please get on that. Because the message of that Pope Francis is trying to pull it out there is getting lost in that that shuffle and in all the noise that we see. And we gotta cut through that noise. But it has to be it really has to be informed by the gospel, with which the chief is love, that God is love. What Pope Francis talked about accompanying people, uh, you know, the USCCB, guys, get on it. It's it's funny, like how many parishes, like the one I have here, there's so little about evangelization. I mean, what they've decided to do is basically outsource it to the dynamic Catholic folks with Matthew Kelly and outsourcing it to another guru, you know, who has a lot of marketing stuff and that sort of thing. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, having worked for the USCCB for seven years, I would see these offices, ecumenism, evangelization, catechesis, justice, peace, and human development. And it seemed to me the department might have five or six people in it. And the head of the department would be a priest or a monsignor or something, or, or, or a lay person who had some kind of academic degree in the discipline. And then they would hire all these associate and assistant directors and even admin assistants who had these, like a master's degree in theology from the John Paul II Institute. And I would find that not a single one of them would know how to turn on a computer <laughs> or, or format a Word document properly or create a PDF and know how to upload it on the website in a way that didn't look embarrassing. They weren't creating things necessarily. They might create a nice document that had a lot of good points in it, but who was actually reading it? Nobody, none of this stuff was getting out there. They, when I was there, they had one social media specialist for the entire conference. 
I mean, come on, guys. They should be communicating with people. They should be creating bulletin inserts and pamphlets. I mean, this is really low-hanging fruit. Like, I want to start a bereavement ministry at my parish. Maybe somebody has a little a little toolkit for how to do that. And and if you go to the the USCCB website, you should be able to print out like a four-page document that just here are the steps, here are the things that you need to think of. They they have the resources, they have they have uh, theoretically the personnel. I don't know that they have necessarily have the right people in place because I mean, how many people with master's degrees in theology do you really need in a very small department that's that's cranking out so little? Let's let's get public facing people in here. I know obviously that that's a little bit dangerous and and it can cause some PR nightmares and it has, but I think that that might be a step in the right direction. I want to turn to our public-facing theologianist, Adam. What do you think is the way forward? And, and if you had some advice to give to your fellow theologians and to the U.S. bishops, not necessarily that you have any authority over them, but you've, you've been in the trenches, you've seen what's going on at the ground level in the church, you've been around the bend and back, what is your advice for the church going forward? It's rehashing because Rachel already said it, but just yeah. I suppose it bears repeating that you have to meet people where they are. You have to be working for social justice. You have to be doing the works of mercy. You were just interviewing someone, Mike, and the podcast was that Christopher Lamb or was it Austin Ivory? Was it Ivory who said something like, "Young people are open to this stuff"? Yeah, that sisters. was uh, I, that was Ivory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. I know that we've had these discussions and we've talked about theologians and their lack of response to this. Yeah. I, you have told me that your eyes were opened at a certain point that people like Vigano and Burke and some of these popular apologists really are having an impact. And I've spoken to theologians and I've spoken even to a couple of bishops about seminarians, for example. And they seem oblivious to what's happening at the grassroots level. They don't think that people are really paying attention. But what I'm noticing in the American church is that there are very, very large pockets of people who are being swayed by some of these arguments and some, some of these really ridiculous arguments, like there was pagan worship going on at the Vatican. Do you have any thoughts about whether anything should be done to address it. Yes, I have an anecdote. Now, I've been teaching theology for 10 years now, but last semester in the fall, for the first time ever, a student asked me about something happening in Catholic news. Namely, guess what? The Amazon Synod. I also, for many years, believed that fringe extremist voices should be ignored. Don't give them oxygen. Everyone has heard that expression. Well, we were wrong. We were wrong. They have oxygen. They have all the oxygen. Okay? So the strategy of do not engage was a failure. And we need to learn from that failure and realize as distasteful as it is, to have to engage with some of the uh, racist and sexist and just the lies, lots of stuff. We do have to engage with that. 
And our speaking to theologians here, our students are unless they don't care and they don't they don't care, they don't care. But our students are seeing that stuff online. Everyone is seeing that stuff. No one lives under a rock anymore. So you got to go after it. We need all hands on deck here. And so and this would be true of bishops as well. You can't just ignore church militant or Father Z anymore. You can't ignore the people saying this, that, and the other thing about uh, what's going on, especially with the way it's now tying into extremist politics and just all kinds of bad stuff. So I, I would exhort theologians, and, and many do. I follow many theologians on Twitter. So actually, a lot of people are already doing this. Some of them do it a lot better than I do, honestly. We do have to engage that and realize it's there. It's bad. It would be nice to just focus all our time on our books and research, which is an important part of theology. In fact, the Catholic Church asks us to research this stuff and to read old Latin books and write about it and think about the hypostatic union and think about this stuff. But we do need to devote some time to this this kind of unpleasant uh, stuff, because if we don't speak up and counter the false narratives and the weird racist version of Catholicism and all this stuff, if we don't speak up, who will? And so theologians should speak up, priests should speak up, lay leaders should speak up, bishops should speak up. We got to just like take off the kid gloves and fight this stuff. All right, Rachel, I'll give you the final word. Well, um, to add to what Adam just said, I would say that we have to the bishops have to, we have to take control of these narratives and change them. Because right now the narrative is being controlled by these fringe groups. Or, But unfortunately they're not so much fringe because, well, they have big bullhorns. They are the loudest voices we hear. And they're the ones who are being listened to. And it's a false narrative. It's fake news, you know, just like you hear with, just like the problems we see in the secular media. We're seeing this within the church, too. It, it's, it's a mirror. You know, it's in parallel to it. So we have to take control of these narratives. The church has to. The Holy Father has. You know, he's doing what he can out there. The bishops have got to step it up and take control of the narrative. Because right now, they're losing it. And we are losing it. And that's what I, I'm really happy that we have where Peter is. Because we're getting our voice out there and trying to help promote a counter-narrative, a truer narrative to this, to try to go and take control of it. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Rachel and Adam, for coming on the podcast. It was a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot, and I hope we gave our listeners a lot to think about. Thank you for sharing your very personal experiences. And on behalf of Rachel and Adam, until next time, take care.